Okay. We will be in 1 Peter chapter 5 today. I would love to be in Genesis. My plan was to be in Genesis. And then I started getting texts and phone calls and messages from more than half a dozen churches along with pastors and elders in three states asking me for my thoughts on the whole Ravi Zacharias thing. And I would rather turn to Scripture than just giving my my bold thoughts on that, but I guess it's going to necessitate a response from us as elders. And so, for that, we're going to turn to the Scriptures. First Peter, chapter 5. If you're like me, First Peter is marked up, highlighted. It's got writing all over it. There's so much that this little book gets into. Before I really get into this message, let me give you a somewhat lengthy introduction. Because, hey, that's what I'm known for, so why not do it, right? Um, like I said, I've gotten a lot of texts and messages and calls from people, and I suppose that makes sense. I mean, I've, uh, apologetics is a passion of mine. I've done it, you know, I've got extensive formal academic training in it. I've been doing it for 20 years, and so I have a lot of friends and people that I know and different churches that I've been to and such that if something like this comes up in, if you will, the apologetics world or the apologetics realm, they'll text me or they call me and we'll talk about it. But I've got to be honest with you, I'm sick to death of talking about this thing. Okay? I am. And I'll tell you why right up front so I don't blindside you with a bunch of stuff later. And this is going to really, I know it's going to chafe a lot of you, and I'm sorry for that. Okay? But much of the work that Robbie did, I don't really consider to be Christian apologetics in the first place. And there's a reason that I've never recommended a Robbie Zacharias book to anyone who's ever asked me for a good apologetics book, just like I've never recommended a William Lane Craig book. I don't always think that those ministries, along with plenty of other celebrity apologetics organizations, by the way, as large and as influential as they may be, and Robbie Zacharias is the largest apologetics organization in the earth, the history of the world. As large and influential as they may be, I do not always think they're doing the great service to the church that they like to think that they are or that they like to pretend that they are. In fact, at times I think they're doing more harm than good because of some of the things that are being taught and put forward. And I know that's going to chafe and rub a lot of people the wrong way, and I'm sorry for that. But that is a conviction of mine. And it comes out of being in that field for so many years and seeing exactly what they taught. And having to use their books in courses in college. I've got a master's degree in apologetics and theology. I've got 30 hours of post-grad study. I'm three classes and a big paper away from a PhD. I've done a lot of work in apologetics. And I've read a lot of this stuff by a lot of these guys. And six months ago, I called a guy that's the head of a big Christian education organization because he was going to use a Robbie Zacharias course as part of their apologetics curriculum and told him don't do it and there's a reason that i did but i'll be honest with you this scandal the robbie scandal is really a symptom of a much broader and deeper problem within the evangelical church today big evangelicalism or big eva as we like to call it big eva is a multi-billion dollar industry in its own right with big book deals conference speaking tours plush posts in powerful positions awaiting all those who are willing to play their cards right. 
And just as much as the swamp in Washington, D.C. is full of unqualified men with corrupt morals in lofty positions doing dishonest things for personal gains, guess what? Big Eva, the church in America, is full of the same nonsense today. And plenty of those celebrity Christian organizations are the very things that need to be drained to start with. And I've got more news for you, just in case that wasn't good enough news. You won't drain the swamp in D.C. until you drain the swamp in the evangelical church, period. Judgment always begins in the house of God. At least that's what 1 Peter 4.17 seems to indicate. And the swamp in the evangelical church in America is massive. And it exists largely because the explicit safeguards that Christ gave to his church to prevent this sort of nonsense are being routinely ignored. They're being routinely gone past. They're being routinely overlooked. And it must end. This scandal does bring an issue to the forefront, though. And it's an issue we all need to be confronted with. Quite frankly, it's an issue that I've been confronted with. And I'm sorry to say I don't do well enough on it. And here I am telling everybody else to up their game. It's an issue in our culture. I need to be confronted with it, and so do you. We all do. So what is the issue anyway? Well, it's the accountability, the authority, and the oversight of the local church. And what are those God-given safeguards that are being routinely ignored? Well, it's pastors, elders, shepherds. They were given for this very purpose. What will keep this nonsense from happening? Us following God's word. And I've got bad news for you. Here in evangelical culture in America, a lot of times we want to pretend that we really think God's word is the end-all, be-all, but we don't want to actually have to walk that out. Because that's going to make us different from everybody else. It's going to make us different from the church down the road. It's going to make us different from our pagan, hedonistic neighbors. And we don't want to be different. We want to be accepted. We want to be popular. And we want to be liked. Think that's a, uh, you think that's a motivation in my heart too? Yeah, of course. It's a motive in every sinner's heart. It's a motive in every sinful flesh, all sinful flesh. We all want to be liked. We want to be popular. We want people to speak highly of us and think highly of us. First John says there's three base motives in the heart of man. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things are not of God. They're of the world. So before we get into all of this, before my blood pressure gets way too high, let's pray. Lord, teach us through your word today. Teach us the proper place of your church, the proper relationship between members of your body, the proper authority, proper oversight and accountability for your body according to your word. Give me the courage to preach the truth of this message, even though it won't be popular. And give us all, myself included, the humility and the grace to receive it. Thank you for your word, God. It is true even when it contradicts us. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's where we'll start today. 1 Peter chapter 5. 
I'd really like, if I had enough time, we would, we'd start in halfway through verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, which is the big apologetics verse for a lot of organizations, a lot of apologetics ministries, right? First Peter 3.15 says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. That's where we get the word apologia. That's what it is in Greek. Give a defense for the hope that lies within you with meekness and, and with fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, they, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. I wish I could just spend the time on that. The problem is, I don't care how big your name is, I don't care how much you think you know or how much other people think you know, the entirety of your ministry is not built on that verse. The Word of God is a little bigger than that verse. And here's what it says just two chapters later. So I exhort the elders among you. This is chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Here it is. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. We don't like that. But that's what the word commands elders to do. Exercise oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject? We don't like that. I don't like that. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud. Not want to jot that down, underline, highlight, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Notice that verse 2 commands elders to shepherd the flock and to exercise oversight. It didn't happen with Ravi. And it's not happening today with a hundred different people, not just in apologetics. We have this crisis in Christian culture today of the celebrity Christian. Oh, they're, they're, they're just too big. They're, they're so big, they transcend the local church. They're too big for all that. Too smart. They don't need oversight. They don't need to be watched over. Why? They're too smart. They're transcendent. Too big. And yet that, without that oversight, we're going to see again, and just like we have, again and again and again, we're going to see major Christian leaders fall. Why? Because they thought they were just too big for the local church and local oversight. And who are you, you small, no-name little pastor, to tell me what I'm doing is not wise? You don't know half what I know. Doesn't matter. You can have all the knowledge in the world. That does not guarantee you'll have discernment. And, I might add, your own selfish ambition and your own pride and your own heart will make you very blind a lot of times to the situations that you are in and that you've created. What do you mean it's a bad idea for me to have this good-looking secretary go with me on my ministry trips? I'm not going to do anything inappropriate with her. Who are you, you little pastor, to tell me any different? 
Do you, is your degree as big as mine? Is it from the big name institution that, it, that mine is? Do you have all the big influential friends I do? Do you know all the people I, you don't know? You're not as big as me, and therefore I shouldn't be under your oversight. And that's the problem. And we're going to see it over and over. And we have seen it over and over and over again. Robbie's not the first. How about Bill Gothard? Boy, got, boy, I sucked the air right out of this room when I said that, didn't I? How about Jerry Falwell Jr.? Guys, I can list big names all day. You know why? Because they're just too big for accountability. Do you know why we have a multiple elders model here at this church? Because we recognize none of us are too big for accountability. Why do we have that? We have four elders at this church and we are all co-equal. We do not have a senior pastor and a bunch of associates. Because that's another way that we can just get one guy above all the accountability of the rest. That's nonsense. You think that model works? I got some names for you about that. How about Carl Lentz? How about Mark Driscoll? I can go down the line. I truly believe at the end of the day, the multiple elders model, not just because it's most faithful to the biblical text, but also because it's the only model where you can find every member in the church is accountable. And that's what's necessary. What is missing in Big Eva today? What is missing in the evangelical church in America today? One word, accountability. And you don't like it any more than I do. I know that. A lot of people don't like accountability, and that's why they miss church so much. (laughs) Why do I need to be there? Well, I'm doing everything fine anyway. What sheep desires to be under oversight? Come on. Like, what farm animal likes to be smacked with the the crook, right? What sheep wants to be under the care of the shepherd when the shepherd is pulling them back in line? None of us. And I'm the same way. Look, I'm not just a shepherd. I'm also a sheep. I have three pastors that watch over me. And trust me, sometimes they're very plain with me, as they should be. What of us, what church member wants to be held held accountable or corrected? None of us. None of us do. Our own rebellious, selfish, flesh nature wants to be above accountability. I want to hold everybody else accountable, but I don't want to have to be accountable myself. Yeah, that's the flesh nature. It's sin. It's rebellion in your heart. That's what's causing that desire. And yet that's exactly what verse 5 tells us to do, to be subject. Be subject. And nobody escapes that command. Nobody Nobody escapes the command to be subject. We don't have a senior pastor and a bunch of junior associates. And one of the reasons that we don't is because that often promotes a domineering leadership, which specifically warned against in verse 3. It also tends to place one man above the oversight of all the others. One man's given a free pass on any real oversight which can lead to a host of spiritual, theological, and practical problems. And that's going on in the SBC today. Not just big-name churches. There are church after church after church after church where there's been an abuse scandal that either the pastor, who was the big guy, there's this big cult of personality, he was just too big, he was too big to have any oversight over, or it's the big guy on the board, There's a massive problem in evangelical Christianity today with accountability and oversight. 
That's why we do it the way we do it here. Acts 14.23 says, When they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, when they had appointed elders, plural, in every church, not when they had appointed an elder in every church, and a lot of churches are set up that way in the SBC, and it's horrifically bad. One guy gets to basically abuse everything. It's nonsense. It's not scriptural. I love that. There's a huge Facebook group I'm part of. I actually get kicked out of it. Go figure. It's the only Facebook group I've ever been kicked out of in my life. Huge Facebook group of SBC leaders, actually, is what it is. A whole bunch of SBC pastors and bigwigs. And I said the wrong thing two or three times. One of them was, they were saying, well, it's, it's a terrible idea to have multiple elders and, you know, we just need one pastor and, and he should be accountable to a committee and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. That sounds great. Give me a, a exegesis on that. Where's your passage of scripture for that? How about these passages of scripture that tell us elders should rule and those that rule well are worthy of double honor? How do you interpret that? Instead of answering me, they're just like, that's it. Get him out of here. But that's the problem that we have. That's the problem in evangelicalism today. We have our traditions that we've done now for 60 or 70 or 80 years, and we want to go with that. And when somebody comes along and says, look, guys, the Bible says this, and I don't think that really coincides or jives with the tradition that we've had, it becomes, who are you to question the system? Well, I'm nobody. But this is the word of the guy who owns the whole thing. He gets the right to question the system. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he has the authority to say how it should and should not run. First Timothy 5.17 says the same thing. Let the elders, plural, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, etc. So there's a reason that we have a plurality of elders. It demands accountability from everyone. Look, the truth is we all face temptation and sin. All of us. Temptation and sin. Even pastors, even elders, even celebrity apologists. Everybody does. Your flesh doesn't go away. Doesn't. And it doesn't get sanctified. Your flesh is not the part of you that gets sanctified. It will always be sinful. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation is overtaking you except that that's common to man. So temptation and sin is common to all men. In fact, the same kinds of temptations are common to all men. That's, that's, that's a very comforting thing. It should be a comforting thing to you. Right? It should make it easier to call your pastor when you're like struggling with a sin. I had a phone call last night and the... the kid on the other end of the line basically says, hey, look, I, I really need help. I'm struggling with pornography. You know, it's so, I'm so ashamed to say that. And I said, why, why are you ashamed to say that? Well, it's just, I, I, just, I, just, I shouldn't struggle with this. I know I shouldn't. So look, the only sin that's overtaking you is that which is common to man. There's not a sin that you're dealing with. Listen to me, saint, beloved. There's not a sin you're dealing with today that is not common it's not. The same sin, the same sinful desires that you're dealing with today, people have been dealing with for thousands of years. And guess what? Your pastors deal with it too. You're not, there's, here's the great part about having a pastor that's also a person. You're not going to call a pastor and tell them, hey, I'm dealing with this sin. And they go, I cannot believe it. You're such a wretch. 
<laughs> you deal with sin? Well, I'm far above that. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. We deal with it too. The same sins. Lust, and greed, pride, and envy. This the very same things. There have been multiple times where I have called my pastors. You have to remember, I have three pastors as well. And I have called them because I was struggling seriously in the moment. And call them and say, i got to talk to somebody because if not, it's not going to end well. I literally did that one night. Embarrass him if he was here. He would not. Ronnie Qualls, this is six or seven years ago now. I can remember one night I called him up and was like, man, I'm struggling. And... I'm not even going to go home. If I go home, it's going to be bad. So I need to come over to your place. It's okay. Come on over. It's home alone. Being tempted. I know if I go home, it's not going to be good. So I literally called him up. Of course. The only time I ever call him up, like 10 o'clock at night, you know. Come on over. Dude's about to go to bed. I went up. That's what I did. Why? Because I don't want to be overcome by this temptation. And if I don't have oversight, I will be. I will be. And I have bad news for you. You will be too. We think of accountability and oversight as this burdensome thing. We don't want to be held accountable because we want to think in our hearts we're above all that. And that is the pride of life driving us to think that. That's the pride of life in our heart saying, we're above all that. I'm not like everybody else, every other little Christian out there. No, I'm a different class. I've got it all figured out. I'm more mature than those little plebes. I don't need all those safeguards that they need. Well, they need that because they're not mature yet. They're not as mature as me. It would floor you to find out how many seminary profs are that way. Which is part of the problem that we have today. How many seminaries are under the oversight of a local church? How many seminary professors are under the local side of an overchurch or uh, the oversight of a local church or local pastor? Very few. That's incredible. People will hire a professor based on what's on paper and never call their pastor. You thought about that? I wonder if we should get this guy to teach the next group of, you know, pastors that's going to come through America. do you think it's maybe pertinent to find out if he's, I don't know, living with his girlfriend? Got a mistress? Snorting coke on the weekend? I mean, you don't know that by what's on paper. How would you know that? Well, you'd have to call his pastor. Well, why should I call his pastor? I mean, he's a big professor. Well, he knows more than that pastor. He may have taught that pastor, kid. doesn't matter. The Word of God says that He has put pastors in our lives and over us for a specific reason. And one of them is to watch out for our souls. You know what we do in big evangelicalism, big Eva? We want that guy to come speak at the church because he's really smart. I've been there. Then people call me, okay, come speak at our church, do this, you know, week-long thing, apologetics, all that, all that. Don't you think you should talk to my pastor? Find out if I'm living right? Well, let's have this big Christian performer come in. they got a great band. Man, they got such a good message in their lyrics. What Do you know about them personally? What is there to know? That's the problem. That's the problem. You don't know. 
Look, in, in evangelicalism today, it is the Wild West when it comes to, you know, accountability. It is. You get, you get a kid. Think of it this way. This, this happens every day. You get a kid who is marginally Christian, and they go to college, and they get a degree at Bible college, and then they go to seminary, and they get a degree at seminary. They've never had a real job. They've never been out and had to see real life or face anything. And all of a sudden, the church will call them. Hey, come be our pastor. They don't know anything about... That kid may have been shacking up with his girlfriend two weeks ago. But, hey, the degree has the right place on it. And he's got a good reference. What does that have to do with his oversight? That's a problem. It's a problem. It is flabbergasting to me to see how many seminary profs are not submitted to spiritual oversight in a local church. It's unbelievable. I did not know. I would never have known that until I went to seminary. Would never have known it. Then I became a friend with a couple of seminary profs at OBU and saw, no, it's just rampant. It's very common. These guys have no spiritual oversight. They think of themselves as the gunslingers of the Christian West. Have me come into your church. I'll preach a powerful message. Who cares if I'm shacking up with my girlfriend? What's that matter? Who cares if I'm addicted to painkillers on the wheel? No, who cares? None of that matters. Because I can preach a good message. No, that stuff does matter. Paper tigers. And and quite frankly, in reformedom, we may be as, as bad or worse than the rest when it comes to being paper theologists, paper theologians. We care a lot about what a guy has to say and don't care at all about who he is. Boy, that should be a slap in the face. Why should they be under the oversight of somebody else? They're the big professor. They're the big theological know-it-all. And yet their spiritual arrogance blinds them to the fact that they're in rebellion to a command of Scripture. I don't care how much Scripture you know if you're not willing to obey it. For all their scriptural knowledge, they still haven't learned how to walk out humility and obedience to God's word. They have only a paper theology. Their arrogance blinds them to the fact that knowledge doesn't guarantee discernment. It's quite common to be blind to your own sinful motives or your own careless happenstance. Why shouldn't I have the pretty lady as my traveling ministry companion or as my secretary? After all, I'm far too knowledgeable and mature to allow myself to fall into sexual sin with her. And the spiritual arrogance becomes their downfall. And it's a downfall that could have been easily prevented by the proper oversight of a local pastor. It's true. I suppose at this point I should probably at least give you an outline of what actually happened in case you aren't familiar. I'm not going to go into all the details. There's like a 13-page report. And they didn't even go into all the details. They basically said, we just poked our nose around these few things and this is what we found. This is not an exhaustive search. But here's what we came up with just in these few things. We only looked through three old phones of his who were submitted to them, by the way, by his daughter. His daughter, who was the CEO and the chairman of the board. Somebody did the right thing. She did. How hard must that have been for her? Kudos to her. Basically, it was discovered that Ravi was having multiple sexual encounters with multiple women in multiple countries for decades. 
funding many of them through the, the ministry accounts. Most of the women were masseuses, and most of the encounters centered around massage parlors that he frequented. He used ministry funds to pay massive sums of money to some of them, financing them for years. He solicited many of them for nude photos. Some of them texted him back and gave them to him right up to within months of his death last year. But wait, there's more. Turns out he was lying or exaggerating about many of his own academic credentials as well, like his time at Cambridge and Oxford. Where he said he was a professor. He never was. The long and short is that it turned out much of what Robbie had to say was phony. How could the man who led the largest apologetics organization on earth do that? How could it be? How could that happen? Quite frankly, in some ways, I think it's a common grace to the church. Because it means a lot fewer people will be inclined toward his teaching. I know that sounds hard. And if you think I'm being too harsh about that. Let me remind you of a few of the things that he taught and said. He called Joyce Meyer a great Bible teacher. <laughs> I, I want to go into that, but I know I'll get off on a rabbit trail. It'll take me ten minutes. I'm not going to do it. He called Henry Nowen, who was a Roman Catholic Unitarian mystic, who does not believe that anybody goes to hell. He called him one of the greatest saints of recent memory. And recommended him to his audience. That's the same Henry Nowen who stated all people would go to heaven whether they knew about Jesus or not. Who stated that all people could find their own way to God. It didn't necessarily need to be through Jesus Christ. He was friends and ministry partners with Brian Houston and Hillsong Church. The same Brian Houston that in 2014 taught his church that Christians and Muslims serve the same God. Yeah, I have a problem with a lot of that. But in some regards, and in a better regard, in a bigger regard, the revelations of Robbie Zacharias' scandal exposes the scandal of mainstream Christianity in America today. And it's the scandal of unaccountability. It exposes how theologically bankrupt we are. It exposes how dangerous and biblically short-sighted the current Christian celebrity culture really is. Pastor and apologist James White nailed it when he said this. Quote, he was put up on a pedestal and was seen as so much smarter than everyone else. But you see, if you're in the church, that's where that's supposed to be kept from happening. What is supposed to happen, since there's actually no official office of apologist, is that there is supposed to be some kind of accountability, some kind of balance. I've said this from the beginning. Apologists have no place outside the church. This is where the problem is. There's no church accountability. There didn't seem to be any of that accountability there. He's exactly right. He went on to say, I've been mentioning in my private conversations with people for years that there is no office of apologist in the New Testament. I've warned for years about apologists who are constantly on the road. They're constantly in the bubble produced by being that guy. Apologists often have a tendency, and it's a fatal tendency in my observation. They are not churchmen by and large. They will not submit to the oversight of a local church. They're on the fringes, often away from the fellowship, often aloof. I have no idea what church Robbie Zacharias was a member of or even if he ever held membership formally anywhere. But reading the report about what went on showed me that he was very rarely in whatever fellowship that would have been. He wasn't a churchman if he was spending weeks and even months alone in Asia, which he was, and that's the problem. 
White went on to say, being a churchman forces you to cover uncomfortable topic, preach hard texts, do exegesis that goes beyond your canned, prepared talks on your favorite apologetic subject. And as a result, it produces biblical balance. I have not seen anyone else noting this reality in the Zacharias situation, but they should be. Who were his elders? Who had oversight? When I have young men come to me asking how to get into apologetics, I throw as much cold water on them as I can. I talk to them about the difficulties, the poverty, the challenges. I always tell them that they must see their work as part of the ministry of the church. In other words, they must be churchmen, balanced and rooted. And I could name right now a dozen apologists who might darken the door of the same church once a month at best. But such should not be the case. And the Ravi Zacharias situation explains exactly why. He nailed it. He nailed it. It's one of the things that I really do appreciate about him. Love him or hate him. James White, who does a lot of apologetic stuff, who does a lot of debate, is a churchman. He's a pastor. He's an elder. He's in a church where he has others watching over him. Does that mean he's beyond touchable or infallible? No. But it does mean he's got a much better platform to speak from. Because he does have accountability in his life. He does have oversight in his life. In an article entitled, The Crisis... (coughs) Excuse me. Getting ahead of myself. The need for accountability within the body of Christ has become an increasingly pressing issue. Certainly we've seen signs, at least as far back as the 70s and 80s, but within the last decade we've seen a veritable parade of lawlessness in the Christian culture in America. It's the Wild West, like I said before. In 2015, even as out of touch a source as Christianity Today, ran an article entitled, Has Accountability Disappeared from the Church? Folks, in most churches it has. Why does a church not have membership? How can you call a place a church when there's no membership? Well, we don't need membership because we're not going to do any accountability. We don't need to know if you're a member or not. Because if you're in sin, we're not going to say anything about it. You're not functioning as a church then. You're certainly not giving oversight. You're not exercising oversight as the Scripture says to do. People don't want to see oversight exercise because they don't want to be disciplined. None of us do. But you know what? Most pastors don't want to do it either because then you're the bad guy. Never experienced that here, have we? And so instead what we do is we just let the church become an absolute muck of sin and lawlessness until it does not resemble the thing that Jesus Christ came to save the Wild West today in America, and the only people that are going to change it are going to be us. His church must change. The world is not going to change it. In that article, has accountability disappeared from the church? Example after example was given of Christian leaders who had no accountability in their life or ministry. The author went on to say this, I have heard friends discuss their need for accountability, yet many people frown at the concept of being held accountable and shout, well, I only need Jesus. I only need to be accountable to Jesus. Well, if only that were true biblically, because the Bible does not say that. 
It says that he has given elders and pastors to you and that you are accountable to them. I am accountable to my pastors. And they do call me to account occasionally. You, you probably can't imagine this. I can be too confrontational at times. <laughs> I grew up in a home with a dad that was basically the Marlboro man. He was tough and he was rough and... He just said it really plainly, and uh, you learn not to let it hurt your feelings too long. We got spankings. If we went uh, two minutes, more than two minutes, you were still, you know, sniffling after two minutes, you got another spanking, because now you're just feeling sorry for yourself. How serious as I can be with that? You get spanked, and then you <laughs> clean it up. <laughs> you okay? <laughs> right? And so in my mind, I think, well, you should, you know, everybody should be that way. <laughs> and sometimes our feelings get hurt and we get offended. Oh, it's true. We might live in a generation that's a little bit too offendable. And I don't mean just people that are younger. I mean all of us. We're like easily offended now, much easily, more easily offended than at one time we once were. But the problem can also be with me. The conclusion drawn from that article, by the way, was this. No wonder we've lost our influence in the culture. We have no accountability, and so we've lost the credibility of our voice. Wow. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? Same thing. There was an article entitled The, Christ, uh, the Crisis of Christian Celebrity. A Time Magazine writer went on to say, basically, look at all these Christian celebrities that have fallen one after another, and the reason is because they somehow are no longer accountable to the local church. And I've got news for you. We're trying to make entire massive organizations that are not accountable to any local oversight, to any local church, or any local pastor. And it's because of the pride of life where they think, well, I've transcended that. I don't need accountability. I'm just so mature and so big and so knowledgeable. I don't, that's for those little people, not for me. Listen, you're not an exception to the rule. There's one exception to that rule that's ever walked the earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it's because he's without sin. If there's one thing that sinners hate, it's accountability. If there's one thing that your flesh, sinful nature hates, it's accountability. Mine, too. But if there's one thing that sinners and sinful flesh and saved sinners need... It's accountability. It's the only way that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. Rebellious children hate it. Lawless men hate it. Lawless flesh hates it. But the church of Jesus Christ must relearn accountability so that it can grow in maturity, so that it can become accountable, and then it become more like Christ. I've got more that I'd like to say, but I'm not going to. I want to read this to you one more time. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. 
Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. That is a command. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you think you are above accountability, then it's because your proud heart is deceiving you. You're not. And I'm not either. You struggle with sin just like I struggle with sin. You struggle with with temptation just like I do, just like everyone else in here does. And you need accountability to keep you out of it. You need accountability. And that's why God has given it. He's given it not because He's a killjoy. He's given it because He loves you. He's given you spiritual oversight because He loves you. He wants to protect you. That's why those men are called pastors and shepherds. Their job is to protect you, your spiritual being, your spiritual growth. It is not always to be your pal. Do you understand where I'm going with that? I want to be my boy's pal. I want to be my kid's friend. But my overarching job is to be their dad. And sometimes being their dad entails not being their friend for a while. That tough love thing. That is what we need in the church today. It's why the church in America doesn't look a lot like the church a lot of times. Because with all the nonsense going on, nobody's cracking down. Nobody's standing up and saying, no, we will not allow that here. That's the job of a pastor. That's the job of an elder. That's the job of a shepherd. And that's why God has given us, all of us, including me, pastors and shepherds, who watch over our souls. These men watch over our souls. By the way, in this church, they do it most, uh, mostly for free. They're not getting big name and recognition out of it. They're not getting fame out of it. They're not getting lots of money out of it. You know what they're getting out of it? They're getting a lot of stress. They're getting defamed. They're getting slandered. That's what they're getting out of it. And yet they do it. They do it for me constantly. I've got two of them right here. And I'm appreciative of that. And we should be too. And until we stop trying to overstep the pastor's role to go around our shepherds and pretend like we don't need those guys, we're not going to see maturity in the body of Christ in America. It's a true story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the men that you've set here to look after my soul. Forgive me, Lord, for the times that I've been hard and arrogant when I thought I knew more. Remind us, Lord, that we don't. We're not above it. That they're here for our good at your command. We thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.